Welcome to another episode of Popcorn Politics. I am Sonali. I'm Bri. And we are excited to bring you our third episode. We had a change of plans this week. Instead of continuing our discussion on the book, The Hate You Give, we're going to be shifting gears and talking about something a little bit different. It's still involving law enforcement, but this time, ICE instead of the police. This is a really important episode for us because it's a little personal. I, myself, am a permanent resident. It's something that I don't share with a lot of people, but I'm not a citizen. I'm a permanent resident. And um, so this story kind of hits home for me. And for Brianna as well. As for me, I came to the United States from Mexico when I was about eight years old. Um, I actually lived through going through the border with a coyote a few times and then just by ourselves going through a little hidden dangerous route underground. So um, it actually really hits home for me too because as someone who knew that was living undocumented for almost 12 years. I really understand where everyone's coming from, especially when they have a fear of reporting. Because once upon a time, me and my dad were in fear of being deported one day before we got our citizenship in 2017. That is unimaginable to me. And um, it seems kind of similar to some of the experiences that some of the people in this documentary went through. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of the documentary, it is called Living Undocumented, and it's a Netflix series, so I encourage everyone to look it up. It follows um, all of these people who are living in the U.S. from all different backgrounds. So Honduras, Mexico, Israel, and it follows them through their immigration journey. Um, Each person has a different story, so we get to see um, how they're dealing with everything. Mm -hmm. And also, they also give out their backgrounds, especially since most of these stories have families. Um, There is one in particular that really caught my eye um, about a daughter who is actually a U.S. citizen, but her father is an immigrant who has been detained for who knows how long. So that's the one thing that I'm kind of like interested on collaborating more with in coming up in the, in a couple minutes. So I'm excited. Yeah, I think this is also a really important conversation to be having because as the documentary mentions throughout the series, Um, Things have really changed throughout the decades since Clinton was in administration, but they've really taken a dark turn since the Trump, um, since Trump got elected. So, and I think that's something we hear a lot that immigration, um, immigrants are having a hard time, but this documentary really um, laid it all out and we can see specifically like what are the things that are different in these times and what specifically are immigrants having to deal with? 
mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like weighing the pros and cons, especially when it came to immigration with the Clinton administration versus the Trump administration. I know Clinton and the Obama administration, they were more lenient and they were more like, oh, hey, we're going to protect you, but these criminals, they have to go. While the Trump administration, they're like, everyone has to go. There's no excuses. There's Even if they have a clean slate and they have nothing wrong, they have to go. So it's just going to balance out that difference in this discussion that we're going to have in this episode too. So it's going to be pretty interesting. Yeah. So um, the first thing that I wanted to talk about was um, something that really stuck out to me throughout the whole thing was the feeling of fear that all of the different families and especially the individuals who were undocumented, they the fear that they were feeling as they had to kind of live in the shadows their whole time being undocumented and um, things like, you know, getting pulled over by a cop for a traffic violation or um, getting a driver's license. Those are things that, um, like, if the the people managed to do those things like if they managed to get a driver's license it was still really scary because um they don't want to get pulled over by a cop because of um the danger that that could put them in Mm -hmm. but that's what makes me very thankful about daca the deferred action again um for childhood arrivals because um, me living under DACA for the majority of my high school career, I was able to actually get a job to help my dad get, you know, help with the bills. And I was able to actually get my driver's license because DACA permitted me to get all the things like a citizen would, even though it wasn't really a pathway to citizenship. So we also hear a lot of teenagers in this documentary from, I believe, three different families in their different situation. And that's something that I was kind of interested about and that got my attention because not only we hear about these adults that immigrated here, these teenagers that either immigrated here when they were a baby or when they were just figuring out what was going on. So um, would you mind explaining what is DACA for anyone who might not know? So DACA or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Basically, it's what people who are under the age of, you could, you could sign up until Trump actually made it a thing to where you can't really sign up now. But before you became the age of 16, and I think it was between the ages of 8 and 16, you could um, sign up, you could apply. It takes about like six months to a year to hear anything back, but I was really, really thankful that I got my approval within three months. Basically, it helps children that arrived here when they were kids specifically to get working permits so they could work, so they could get like a driver's license or even ID so they could, you know, do all these things that all these citizens can do. And basically, it kind of protected them from being deported up until they were about 18 to 21, if I remembered correctly. So that's what DACA was. Um, There was also a DREAM Act that didn't pass. It actually gave us um, pathway to citizenship, us kids that came here. But unfortunately, it didn't pass the Senate and the Obama administration. Um, 
that's what DACA was. That's what's helped around, I believe it was 350,000 children who came as children from being deported with their father or their mother and it helped them go through school, it helped them get a job, it helped them try to have that settled life that a lot of citizens don't have to worry about. So that's what DACA was that helped us become settled, to become Mm -hmm. what it felt like to be citizens. So I think in the documentary, the girl that gets DACA, her name is Bar, mm-hmm. and she's, her family's from Israel, and her I think her whole family's been in the U.S. for 17 years, since she was a baby, because she's 17 years old in the documentary, and I think her parents, her dad is a small business co-owner, mm-hmm. and um, and I think her parents are probably never going to become citizens because there's not a likely path to citizenship for them. But Bar, the girl, gets DACA. And so she has a little bit of a brighter future. And I think that's the good thing. That's the only like positive side to this is that for the kids, like at least before Trump got elected, there was a path for them that was a little bit brighter. Mm-hmm. So um, she, in the documentary, she talks about how before DACA, she had to work all of these odd jobs where she had to like dress up in an animal suit for like birthday parties and stuff. And it was really uncomfortable and sweaty. And she was so grateful to not have to do that anymore because now she gets to have a regular job where she doesn't have to be paid under the table. And it's just so... um, striking and um you know it's a real eye-opener to see how badly these kids just want like normal lives they just want to be able to work and um the lengths that they're willing to go through just to be able to have jobs yeah definitely and especially um, i forgot his name but the step the stepson of louise very first person that was interviewed for this um, docu-series. He had a little boy who lived with him almost his whole entire life. No. And because he didn't have DACA, because I think they either didn't apply or they got rejected, he had to be deported with his mother. And the hard thing about that was that the father, he was in Texas, and the detention center where the mother was held was in Missouri. So he wasn't protected from deportation because he wasn't under DACA. Because as soon as they even thought about it, DACA was no longer a thing. The only way you were able to uh, obtain DACA in the Trump administration is if you had it beforehand and you had to renew it. That was the only way. And that was sad. Yeah, and it that was the other thing it it like really spoke to his character how far he was willing to go just to make sure he was following the law like he did what he was told to do even though it put him in danger yeah and because of that he was in detention himself for for about 70 days and the side of that like his lawyers they came they came to support him they came to fight for him 
And one of his lawyers actually got hurt because one of the ICE members decided to put their hands on her, which I definitely believe with this documentary. Also was behind the scenes on how immigrant lawyers are being treated, especially at these detainment centers. Because basically, immigrant lawyers are against the government. If you, if you think about it, because this government, they're like, oh, we want to separate families. We want to take you back to, you know, your home country. We don't want you coming here. Well, immigrate, immigration lawyers are like, no, we're going to fight for you. We're going to get you your citizenship, hopefully your permanent residency. So that's also an eye opener in how some of these attorneys are being treated. Did you notice or did you get the feeling that um, a lot of these people because they were undocumented they it was almost as if they like don't exist to the government and they have to kind of pretend pretend like they don't exist as you said in the beginning about living in fear like they have to live in the town law like they can't go out all the time as a please like regular people because like, oh, what if there was a cop here? What if someone around me does something illegal and I get caught doing it? Then I have to get deported. So that's why they're kind of like left in the shadows or invisible because they have no choice. If they want to stay here, they have to live in the demo. They have to stay away from the public eye as much as possible. And coming from experience, I had to come straight home from school. All I did every day for almost 12 years was just go back and forth to school couldn't go to any parties i couldn't go to any field trips all because my parents were afraid that they were going to catch me so it's kind of hard to explain that's like the best way i can put it yeah i bet it's like kind of hard to build relationships and um things like that Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's probably another reason also that we don't usually hear these stories because people are afraid to talk. They talked a lot about how people in the documentary had taken this extraordinary risk just by telling their stories. Um, I applaud them because literally most of these people, they were checking in with ICE at least like what, every few times a year? just to see if they don't get deported and especially with these immigration lawyers like they're they're showing their face they're like hey they're telling the government if the government ever saw that docuseries like hey i'm against you this is me i'm going to do whatever it takes to help these people and especially with these children um bar pablo and camillo which is which are two other teenagers that came to america when they were babies um they were really were really trying to tell their story and they were risking it because in Colombia the the guerrillas who are gang members they were after them so what if Mexico what if Colombia actually had their hands on this docuseries and they know where they are basically that's like a risk that me and my dad would never take if we were still undocumented right now yeah um, I think it, it helps the rest of us kind of um, at least hear about their experiences, though, because if they hadn't done this, then we would have never like see what it, seen what it's like to be in their shoes. So I'm glad that we got to hear. I'm glad that they took the risk and told their stories. I think some of I think one of the people never actually showed their face. Miguel and Maria. 
Yeah. And I think I was expecting that from more people, but I'm glad that more of them did see their show their faces because we got to see that they were real people with like real families and everything. Yeah, it's yeah true. Sure. Just like the rest of us really. Like they're not they're not that different from the rest of us. It's just that they happen to be undocumented. Yeah. The thing that hurts me is that when we are growing up, we want what's best for us. Then once we have a family, we want what's best for our children. We all want the American dream. Even citizens, they're like, I want to get out of poverty. I want to be stable. I want the American dream. Yet when people come around from the border, rather it's from Africa, rather it's from Laos, rather it's from a Mexi- Mexican, Mexico, Honduras, or Colombia, they want the same thing too. The only difference is they come from somewhere else. So literally yeah. everyone who lives here in America, they want the same thing. But the problem is, is that there is no empathy. There is no compassion. There is no sympathy for anyone who comes to the border, even though we want the same thing, yet we don't realize that. Yeah. Um, so that was the first thing that, you know, really struck a chord with me that um, these people are like kind of living as um as if they don't exist to the rest of the country which is really sad to me because um it's just hard to like it's hard to build relationships and you know have jobs and all of that um and the next thing that i noticed was there were a few times in the documentary where um, they brought up irony or people said things, made comments that um, that just reminded me how ironic this whole situation is. Um, for example, one of the lawyers who I think lives in Ohio, mm. she was saying, she was talking about Mauritius, where um, I think A was dad is from Mm -hmm. and she was talking about her clients from Mauritius and she was saying a lot of um a lot of Mauritians live a lot of Mauritian refugees live in that city and Mm -hmm. she says that when she was talking to them she said they tell me they love the United States of America when they go to mosque they're praying for America so it's so ironic that the US would send black African immigrants fleeing an oppressive regime back to Mauritius to an oppressive regime Mm -hmm. I mean that comes to show like how much America even though people say America is such a great country to immigrants honestly it's not really isn't like there's there are times where my dad and even some other people that we know that were also undocumented or still are like yeah this is such a great country like we could thrive here and i'm like can you see that that's not the case right now especially here in trump's america where we're so afraid to even step out of the houses most of the immigrants that work in factories labor labor heavy jobs they are not working right now because of why you know they're too afraid to go back to where they've been oppressed like Mauritius how they had an oppressive regime especially with the guerrillas back in Colombia 
in Laos, where Veni, who I'm going to talk about later in the show, um, escaped basically from the Cold War, where his dad served. So basically, these all these people are trying to run while the government's like, "No, you got to go back." It really breaks my heart because they're telling all these people, "Hey, you got to go back." When it comes to them, they want all the help they can get. So it's just like, I, it's kind of a hypocrisy right now. So to me, it reminded me of, um, it reminded me of like, if you've ever heard like stories of um, parent, parent like kids' relationships with their abusive parents sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like if kids have an abusive childhood, um, sometimes they'll just run away and like never look back. But there are a lot of kids who like still love their parents no matter what and like all they want is to be back with them and they just like really look up to them and they would do anything for their parents even though they were abusive and Mm -hmm. that's what this kind of reminds me of that these immigrants who have been treated so badly by the U.S. still love the U.S. and they pray for the U.S. Mm -hmm. even though they the U.S. has kind of been horrible to them yeah that's true and talking about um talking about the trump administration for a sec i just want to backtrack we followed this woman named Alejandra in the docu series she was married to an ex-marine veteran and basically trump promised veterans protections and he said that he was on their side but they still ended up deporting her. And for what? So, sometimes I, I get kind of confused when I saw that part of the docuseries. Because I'm just like, she never did anything wrong. She's married to a veteran, which Trump said he'll protect. And their families. Yet he's not protecting Alejandra. They're not protecting his family. Yet there are 65,000 people that are serving this country that, are e- that either are veterans duty right now or they're married to an immigrant yet that's not protecting the truth not at all so it's kind I, of- I didn't know those statistics that's um that's interesting to hear yeah i kind of researched that last night when we were talking about it when we were doing our note um i was just curious because the I forgot his name, but the Marine the veteran, he was like, there's a lot of people I know that are married to immigrants or were immigrants that I fought with. I just did a little bit of research and it said 65,000 from 2019. Who knows? There might be more right now. There might be less. Um, but that's just a rough estimate. And yeah. wow. that there's that many. And Trump promising them that he's on their side kind of makes it... And it makes it ironic, in a way. Yeah, it's a real betrayal, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Alejandra's family really realized how um, how wrong they were. I think because the the husband was a Trump supporter in 2016 and voted for Trump, and he didn't realize how. Um, how much damage Trump would cause their family. 
Yeah. The reason that he did vote for Trump was because of that promise Trump made to veterans. Is that I'm going to help protect you and your family. No. I could see the, like, the hurt in um, Alejandra's voice when she was talking about, like, how she felt treated by the administration it it seemed like she felt like personally rejected almost yeah like trump was like personally rejecting her her family and like um the government didn't care about her um her work the work that she'd done as a, a military spouse mm-hmm. i don't blame her i would feel the exact same way if i was in her shoes yeah Definitely. Um, and so another another girl kind of said something similar. She said that in sc- um, in the detention center, very ironic, in the detention center, um, when she was detained, the one of the things they taught her was to say the Pledge of Allegiance. So imagine that you get detained and you need to learn the Pledge of Allegiance while, like, they're deciding whether to send you back to your country or not. hmm It's just wild to me. Definitely. I mean... Like, pledge your allegiance to this country that is trying to send you back, that doesn't want you. Like, sometimes I feel like America isn't making up their mind, like... I believe they need more people just so they could like grow the economy because they know they need all these immigrants for the economy but at the same time they're like we don't need you so they're kind of like balancing that out by teaching them the Pledge of Allegiance to make them feel like everything's okay but at the same time like no they're not so I believe that's why they do that in the detention centers because from my family's point of view when my aunt got deported they forced her to do she was deported for almost four months because they were waiting for Guatemala to deport her, come and accept her. So every day, I think it was like twice a day, they actually forced her to recite the Pledge of Allegiance up until she knew it by heart, until she led people to pledge, until she got deported. Yeah, that... That, again, reminds me of, like, an abusive relationship. Um, and I I lived in New Mexico for a year, like, close to El Paso, kind of. El Paso, mm-hmm. Texas. And a lot of my friends um, had different experiences with Border Patrol and ICE. And we got to see, um, we got to see some of the uh, immigration trials and... It was like kind of similar. The some of the um, defendants kind of I don't know what to call them. The the people who were um, immigrating or you know the judges were gonna decide whether they needed to be sent back or whether they could stay. I don't want to call them defendants because they haven't really committed crimes. But anyway, mm-hmm. they they kind of said similar things sometimes. Like they they would thank the judge for letting them stay in their con- in the country and that was just like striking to all of us because the the judge pr- 
probably wasn't going to let them stay in the country. He was deporting them, or he was, you know, mandating that they be deported. But they were thanking him for like letting them stay, and it was like, thank you for like your, thank you for all of the work you've done for us, even though you're sending us back. Mm-hmm. And um, with that, and also with the example that you afford with the abused children going back to their families. Reminds me of. I'm gonna go back to Louise for a second. It's reminding me of Kenya because they deported her after she was in detention for I think it was a month or two. She was pregnant, and somehow she all of a sudden decided that she had enough. She was going to come back to America, and this time they weren't going to do anything. She was going to keep hidden, and they had their baby in America. So that kind of also reminded me of that specific specific moment in the Darkest series, how they followed her across the border with the coyotes, with everyone else, and with Luis talking about the train and how packed it would be, and how he was worried about Kenya her being pregnant, and then her son being all rowdy and not sitting still. So her dedication to come back to America after she was deported. It takes a lot of strength and it takes a lot of a lot of risks and sacrifice for that. Yeah, especially as I think she was like six months pregnant or something. Mm-hmm. Five months pregnant. Um, and you were also talking about um, Bar, I think, who mm-hmm. had to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Or, yeah. no, he... She, her class said the Pledge of Allegiance at school, but she never did. Mm-hmm. Like, she knew that the, that the government was against her. Even though she wanted to sit still and not pledge, there were teachers and even the principal forced her to just say it because she was in America and that she had no other choice. Right. So she's the one from Israel who got mm-hmm. DACA and... I think she seemed a little bit more, um, like, like she, she was a person who fought back sometimes. Yeah. And maybe, maybe that's part of what, um, led to her getting DACA, who knows. But that was, that was, like, part of that story. And I think that had something to do with her not wanting to say the Pledge of Allegiance because she was someone who, like, didn't want to just you know, be treated unjustly. She wanted to fight back more. And this was, like, her way of fighting back. Yeah. And she she knew really well that, like, if any if she were to do anything, that her parents would get caught. So even though she was standing up to herself, she still kind of was on the down low. Because unlike everyone else that was on this series, her parents weren't on the radar for ICE. They didn't even know these people were that's why their last names were to remain unanimous not unanimous anonymous so they didn't get caught so they didn't get into the isis system so they got deported so that's why only their first names were used so yes there were a lot of things that were not just ironic but really sad um just showing how how 
dark of a time the U.S. is in right now. To so you know to all the people that say you know make America great again. If only we could make America great again. I think we've come to a really dark place, and if there's a time to make America great, I think it's now. Um, to you know put a spin on the MAGA slogan. Mm. So, but not everyone, not everyone was as loyal as, um, as Alejandra and Kenya. The um, the Mauritian people were. Some of them actually ended up leaving mm-hmm. for other places. So Eddie, um, in this docu series, Eddie and his husband Tyler, they actually were. They got married, but Eddie was in the U.S. since he was 14, and he claimed false citizenship. What that means is that if you claim false citizenship, you were barred from ever getting a permanent residency. You were barred from ever getting a citizen, even a pathway to citizenship. So you can just forget it. And so because of that, and Eddie knew this, he had to move to Canada just so they can have a citizenship somewhere else. And... Eddie talked about where they ended up going and it was Canada and he said that once he saw how easy it was to get citizenship in Canada he felt this feeling of joy mm-hmm. so he and his partner did what's called express entry where I think you you just go to Canada the Canadian border and say that you're looking to be citizens he said that he said like when he got to the border he just told them so we're here to land as permanent residents and he was allowed in and he just he said he felt so like relieved and he also felt like he had a responsibility for the people who were stuck for the um, you know undocumented people who are stuck in the U.S. because I think mm-hmm. leaving is still a privilege. Like leaving voluntarily is a privilege. Not everyone has the means to immigrate to Canada if mm-hmm. they don't get citizenship here. Yeah, that's true. Oh, and speaking of Vinny earlier, I wanted to point out that not all immigrants in this docuseries are from Latin America. This person, Vinny, he came to the United States from Laos in 1986. This was during the Cold War when there was a war in Laos. There was people in poverty. He he exclaimed that there was about, I believe, 67 to 73% of the Laos population in poverty or somewhere where they didn't have a stable home. Because they have to keep migrating because of all this violence, because there were there was a war going on because of the communism and everything. And so he came to the United States and they still treated him like he was, even though he got his permanent residency, he lost it when he was persecuted and he went to prison for doing some type of drug trafficking. He explained that that was the only way that he was able to get any sort of income to help him. And he actually did this documentary when he just got married and had his beautiful daughter. And so 
I just wanted to point out that not all of the immigrants in this docuseries are from Latin America and that there are people who are from Asia, let's say Laos or even Vietnam, where they came to migrate, but they're still in the process of getting deported. So people will think, oh, it's just like Hispanics. No, there's Asians that are still waiting to be deported to this day as well. And especially European. Because yeah, there was I- also Awa, um, Awa and her dad. Mm-hmm. I know that my ex, his, his mother was from the UK. And she's only staying on a green card. And they actually have some sort of argumentation that she is not legal and that they're just waiting for her to have her permanent residency expire in a way so they could start deporting her so they could start the process so that's like another kind of point of view that people think that oh Europeans are safe and Asians are safe no that's not the case and I know with um what was her name Aval yeah, a- AWA. So with AWA, like even though she was a citizen, we actually saw what it was like to be in a family where there was an immigrant and they had no choice but to stay in detention. And they were trying to fight for their dad, even though she was a citizen. She had to live through the, invis- the invisibility, the everything that her dad had to be put through. She had to witness so that was another point of view to start this immigration series, which I definitely really liked. So, I, something that's always, something that's been on my mind is I've been hearing about people who get deported and they've been living in the U.S. for most of their lives. So, mm-hmm. something they, a comment that they make is um how can i go home to a country that i don't know because you know the u.s is my home and um so yes that's something that's been on my mind like what happens when you get deported to a country that you've never actually lived in like alejandra had lived in the u.s for so long that she considered davenport florida her home and she was getting deported with her daughter, who definitely didn't know um, what anything other than Davenport was because she was born in Florida. So what what would that be like for someone like that to go home? They didn't even have a place to stay, really. Um, I mean, they had an apartment, I think, but it was kind of, it sounded like kind of a makeshift like housing situation they didn't really have like a permanent place like they probably don't have jobs and they have to start over and that's really hard for me to imagine yeah that's true they gotta start somewhere right yeah they might not have family around anymore because if you've lived in the u.s for like 20 years and then you get deported to your home country like what if your family has all died or they've all moved to the u.s and you're just by yourself trying to start over like without any resources or anything it's like being in the u.s as a new immigrant but 
the opposite and it must be worse because of like fewer resources yeah that's true Mm -hmm. so i just want to lay out some key points that was uh was specifically mentioned in the docu-series so one of them is when you apply to be a united states citizen it could take up to eight months. No, it could take a minimum of eight months to a year process. No, apply. And then to process, it'll take six months up to a year. So that's almost three years right there. Almost four, if you count it. And then when it comes to people that are trying to get their citizenship, rather that's um, a pathway to, you know, working what my dad did was going through a class for a few months and then doing this really it's not really a hard test but it was a test to test his knowledge for the government um there's at least up to 12 years to even get into the front line to even be considered to take these courses or to do the steps that you have to take to be a citizen which kind of makes sense because my dad me and him we waited as I stated before, almost 12 years just to get our citizenship approved and for us to be in front of the line. Because since we came in 2011, no, 2009, we came. 2007, 2007, my bad. So in 2007, my dad started the application process. It took him about almost two and a half years just so it could be processed. And the process took an additional one year. And then as soon as he got the approval to start his pathway citizenship, it took about additional five years just to hear back from rather he got approved or denied. And then it took an additional year almost a year and a half just to complete the course, take the test, and get a certification that said, hey, you're officially the United States of America. And whenever we go do stuff like, you know, get a passport, kind of renew our ID, we have to take that certificate with us. So that kind of makes sense as to why it took my dad so long just to get our citizenship. So another fun fact, by the time you apply to get a green card, it could take up to a year or so to process the application, and it takes about another few months to get a decision or a hearing. So when you do get a green card or you try to um, apply to have the permanent residency status, you would have to appear in immigration court or in front of ICE, where they make the decision for you based on your history back home, based on if you ever broke any laws here in America and based on how your living situation, your working situation here. So, so that's um, another benefit for you. A lot of these statistics are actually available if anyone is curious and wants to look up the the timelines for themselves. It's on the state government page um and it i think it depends on who's petitioning for you because 
parents can petition for their kids or kids can petition for their parents. Um, you can petition for a sibling or a spouse. And depending on who you're petitioning for and what your home country is, the um, the process and the timeline can look really different. So, for mm-hmm. example, um, Mexico is one of the countries you hear about pretty often because um, a lot of the people, at least in California, who are undocumented are from Mexico. And if you go to that website now and you look at what year they're processing applications from, they're processing from 1998. So mm-hmm. kids who are like, so my brother was born in 1998. So if he applied to be a citizen when he was born, like that's when he would be getting it right now. So he's 22 and that's how long it takes just to get your citizenship approved which sounds crazy because what if you're like you know 30 years old and you don't get citizenship till you're like 50 and like by that time half of your life has gone by and the resources that you really needed as a 30 year old like weren't there at the time because you weren't a citizen mm-hmm. um i so i still have a green card but at one point i um i didn't have the paperwork that i needed to prove that i was a green card holder to because i got a new job and i needed the paperwork so i went to the immigration office and this is all like things that i knew that i was able to do but not everyone knows how to navigate this system because mm-hmm. it's a really complicated system but so i was at the immigration office and i was waiting for my turn and i overheard one of the other per- people talking to one of the immigration officers and she was asking about her brother's application and she said her brother had applied 17 years ago and he hadn't heard anything back and So she was just wondering like if there were any updates. She thought maybe she'd missed something or like if like the application had been denied or something and the officer said no, like that's just how long it takes and and she not only said it takes that long but she said it would probably be 15 more years until anything was done. So they would probably be waiting, you know, 30 years before anything happened. Mhm. I'm just hoping that in the future we see like an easier way for people to get their citizenship. Even though one thing that I want to bring up is that a lot of people keep on commenting saying that you should come here legally. The thing is it's not easy when it comes to your home country because I know in Mexico my dad has tried since I was born from the time I was 8 when he had enough. He tried to go to all these government official offices. He went to government officials himself. He would actually try to go to the border where they had um, a special agency to help people have emergency passports for families in the United States. He, he was all rejected. And most of the time, when you, especially in Latin American countries, the only way you actually ever get like your green card your permanent residency or if you ever like the only way that you can actually go across the border legally is if you are rich 
or if you are a government official because that's all south america ever cares about is the rich and the government officials they don't care about anyone else. so it took my dad literally almost eight years to figure out how to do it legally with no resources that he could find in Mexico that he found here in America. So with the people that keep on saying that you got to come here legally, it's not as easy as it is here. And when it comes to coming legally here in the United States, most people don't realize is that these people that try to come to the United States, they are way too poor to even get the resources they need. And even if there were resources available, they're mostly, as I said, poor government officials and for the rich get to the United States all because they could offer the United States something. Right. So that was one of the objections that people should just come here legally. And, um, and I think Alejandra, the one who was the military spouse, Mm -hmm. she said she had tried three times and I don't remember what happened, but for some reason it didn't work out and um she ended up just living in the country um and i know um the uh donier family from colombia they even stated when they came to united states that they applied for asylum a few times because it wasn't a hundred percent political they were rejected every time they applied because they had these death threats about giving the guerrillas money so they deemed it 50% political and 50% economical and that's another tidbit that I want to share with people is if you ever want to come to the United States under asylum it has to be 100% political it can't be economic it can't be personalized it has to be political 100% yeah, I, I do know, um, I, um, uh, I have friends who were working in places like the attorneys in the documentary we were working at. So they were working at these, um, like immigration law firm nonprofits where attorney, attorneys would kind of work with these kinds of undocumented people and help them with their applications and there were a lot of people who were domestic violence um, survivors and they were fleeing from their countries because of their abusive partner um kind of like kenya from the movie where she had this ex-husband was an officer that would take her and when she got deported, he like kept stalking her house and she was really afraid. He would like park his car in front of their house all night. Like I would be terrified if someone was just parked in front of my house. And if he was a cop, like there's no, like you can't really hide. There's only so much you can hide from that. Yeah, that's definitely true. And that's another tidbit I wanna, sorry about all these tidbits. But I, this is something um, I'm extremely passionate about. Tidbit, especially in South America, Central and South America. When you are a victim of domestic violence or sexually assault, um, when people actually pay the government to keep it hidden 
where they actually pay the corrupt officers to not them or not solve the issue just because they're afraid of jail they would do that because central america is extremely money hungry so you drive them to not doing anything they won't do it so that's how corrupt the police are in central america that's how corrupt the legal system is there but sadly even if you are a domestic violence victim and you're trying to get asylum it's really hard to have that as your reason because for some reason like the u.s government doesn't take that seriously they don't count that like Mm -hmm. there have been cases where domestic violence victims did get asylum for domestic violence but it's kind of rare so usually you have to have another reason that's true So, those were some of the key statistics that we wanted to talk about. Um, I also wanted to go over some other objections that people have when they talk about um, immigration and um, making the pathways to citizenship easier. Or even just making the system like less harsh and less abusive to people who are immigrating so one of them we already talked about it was um why can't people come here the right way and um the next one that i wanted to talk about was that we can't take everyone and our system is already bursting at the seams this is something i've heard a lot of people say um both actually on the right and even one of the attorneys in the documentary like one of the one of the attorneys that was actually advocating for these victims even she said something like this she made a comment that our immigration system is already so full and it's this mindset of like scarcity i think my mom was actually making a comment like this too she like we were talking about how i think the um the immigration system is really unfair and that people who are coming here they really just want opportunities they really just want to work like um and she said well it's not really our responsibility to take on all these people when it's their home country's responsibility to give them better educations better jobs and if they come here without skills then they're gonna be a burden on our welfare system and they're just gonna end up like sucking all these resources out so I'm curious what you have to say about that. I have my own thoughts, of course, but yeah, what would you say to someone who said our our country is so full as it is, like we can't let more people in? So it just depends on what they mean by full. They mean by like application wise, as we stated that the, the system is so it's kind of more traditional. They don't have it modernly, like they don't advance it to technology because I have a feeling when it comes to our immigration system, they kind of did it more towards technology. It will be faster. But if you meant like it's bursting at the seams when it comes to applying for citizenship, 
we just need like a faster kind of like system where we could put in place so people don't have to wait that long. When it comes to population-wise and economic-wise, I just want to go back to Ron, who was the immigrant from Tel Aviv in Israel. He actually built a business, a $2 million business, and it actually brought $2 million a year. Um, and he created dozens of jobs for the, his community. And so knowing that a lot of our small businesses that we see in California, in Texas, in Arizona, here in Nevada, they are ran by Hispanics. And they're benefiting our economy one way or the other. They're either trying to kind of boost the GDP of these states, or they're trying to give back to their state. As in, most of these small businesses, they give back to charity. So when it comes to economic-wise, I do not agree with that because they're the reasons why we have a good economy before pre-COVID. When it comes to population-wise, um, we have more than enough room. I mean, we do a lot of deforestation practices to where we have all these homes, we have all these buildings that are, you know, are abandoned. And there, there are these Hispanics that are carpenters, that are construction workers, that are trying to fix these homes so they can um, try to live in them. So when it comes to population economy, I really don't see why it would be at the seams when Hispanics are just trying their best to actually live here and it's actually not really affecting anyone but people who are kind of against it. So that's just my take on the, the objection that it is bursting at the seams because we do have room, the economy is good because of immigrants and we just need to update the immigration system to where it fits more modern times so we can Bring more people in more legally and stop the deportation because I'm telling you right now, even though it's bursting at the seams, the deportation is actually taking away money that the Hispanics are actually putting into the economy because it takes a lot more money to deport Hispanics by one million dollars to deport them than to keep them in the in the American system and help them with the economy. But basically, when they're trying to deport these immigrants because we are bursting at the seams, they're hurting our economy in a way. So that's just my take on it. Right. Um, I think a comment that I know you've heard people say often is that um, immigrants are stealing our jobs and things like that. But I think, first of all, there are different... If you come here on a visa, there are different visas you can come on. And there's a skilled worker visa. And then there are different like unskilled worker visas, I think. And if you're not skilled, um, then it's, it's a little harder to come here. But those those people who are quote unquote in unskilled, they end up coming and doing jobs that like native U.S. American people wouldn't do otherwise. They're, you know, cleaning hotel rooms, they're driving Uber or like things like that. And without those people, like we, our economy would be really struggling. So to deport all of those people, like we wouldn't have a lot of the essential workers that we're using right now, especially during this pandemic. 
Um, and then there's the skilled workers who end up being like engineers, scientists, um, and those are from many countries like like India, like China. But that's another thing that we could do to um, bring out more skilled workers from even Latin America, also. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one where. You said that the immigrants are taking our jobs and everything, how they're doing housekeeping and a lot of farm working. Someone tells me that um, when sorry, someone you, says, oh, immigrants are stealing our homes. You um, got cut off for a second. You hear me? Yeah. Okay. So when someone says that immigrants are taking our jobs, what I tell them as a rebuttal is, you have fruit in your refrigerator. Do you have vegetables in your refrigerator? Do you have meat in your refrigerator? You know, most of these processing plants are from Hispanics. They're the ones that are cutting this meat. They're the ones who are disaffecting it. They're the ones pulling these fruits and vegetables. So that's what I counteract with. Do you have food on your table? And do you have a roof over your head? Because more than likely, these people who constructed these houses and apartments are Hispanic. Because that's the only job that they were able to get. So that's kind of like my comeback when someone's like, oh, they're stealing our jobs. And I'm just like, I don't see them stealing any jobs. If anything, they're actually making your life better. Right. And yeah, it's crazy. Like, they're literally just like risking their lives to be able to work. Like, you know, how awful do we have to be to to deny them that ability like they're willing to work these like miserable jobs and they don't even complain they like a lot of them just do it because they're happy to have these jobs and they don't get good pay and like they don't they don't have the ability to negotiate for higher pay because they're undocumented and mm-hmm. they're just they're just trying to like provide for their family and like build a better future and like here we are telling them they can't even do that yeah that's true and as i said before like we're all in the same boat we're all wanting the american dream we all want to own a house we all want our children to have a good education we all want to be stable that is all our dreams at some point the only difference is where we come from that's the only difference i've seen because what i've learned from Everyone else, whether they're immigrants or citizens, I keep learning that they want the same thing. Like I, I did plenty of interviews when I was doing my debate team when I was still in college, and I keep on asking them, like, "What is your dream? What do you want to achieve in life?" And majority of them said, "I want to buy. I want to own my own house. I want a good family to where they have good education. They're healthy. They're safe, and they have a roof over their head." And that's another thing that I counteract with. I'm just like, yeah, we all want that here, even immigrants. The only difference is where they come from. That's the only difference between us. If it didn't matter where they came from, you guys wouldn't have any issue. They want the exact same thing you do. It's kind of like um, what side of the fence you were born on. Mm-hmm. Like, were you born on the right side like the u.s side or the wrong side which is often the mexican side uh-huh 
that's true. So we are kind of coming to the end of our discussion. It's been almost an hour or maybe even more than an hour. It's been an um, hour and four minutes. Oh, okay. So <laughs> yeah, I, but I think it's been a really interesting discussion and I want to keep thinking about this as we think about how to reform our broken immigration system. Mm-hmm. Let us know if you have questions and For our next episode, we are going to be looking at mental health and, um, you know, what that has to do with our identity and pop culture. So stay tuned and let us know what you think. Have a good week, everyone. Have a good week, everyone. And we also have a Twitter. Our panhandle is Popcorn Politics. Please follow us, like us. Please follow us and subscribe to our podcast over in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, everywhere you find podcasts. We'll see you in the next episode. Um, okay, so we...